rocking around the Christmas tree. Have a holy, jolly Christmas. It's the most wonderful time. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle Tired of an endless loop of pop Christmas music? Coming December 24th, sacred music for the Christmas season. LutheranPublicRadio.org Serenity Stability Solemnity Lutheran Public Radio, sacred music for the Christmas season. Coming Christmas Eve at LutheranPublicRadio.org call it a loving rebuke. Anybody who's been married for any amount of time knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it often comes from the wife. There's no problem with that. It's part of her job, actually, as the helpmeet, the the weaker vessel. It's part of her job to issue these loving rebukes to her husband. Now, we could call it what we like, but uh, Pastor David Peterson is calling it remonstrance. We'll have him explain that in part three of our series on marriage enrichment. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. My pleasure. Give us a brief recap of where we were last time talking about subordination. Well, we're trying to conceive of subordination as something other than simply passive or blind obedience, um, submission that has to do with inferiority, but to recognize that subordination is really a leadership term that requires quite a bit of effort and deliberate practice on behalf of the person who's subordinated, right? To live under authority means to follow orders for the purpose of fulfilling the mission and recognizing wives are really the subordinates par excellence in Holy Scripture, but they're not ex- in, no, in no way exclusively the subordinates. All of us are subordinates because we're all under authority. We live under pastors, governors, policemen, teachers, and so forth. You used the term before in our conversation, remonstrance. What is it? <laughs> well, it's not a word I made up, but I'm kind of making up a definition for it or trying to use it in a, in a particular way. The word remonstrance in English just means rebuke. But I want to particularly think about the duty of a subordinate to rebuke the one in authority over him at a sor- sort of a personal risk. So there's all sorts of rebukes. Fathers rebuke their children. God rebukes us. We rebuke our friends. I mean, on and on it goes. There isn't a biblical word for this, and there's not an English word for this that would be this exact thing. But I want to use a word different than rebuke to try to set it aside. That's why I like this word remonstrance. And I'm thinking of, again, that kind of peculiar duty when the sergeant major has to tell the colonel that he's making an error. And he does so at some risk to potentially his own career or even his life, right? But he does it out of love, both for his own subordinates and for the one in authority over him, and because he wants to complete the mission. So 
it is something that we all experience. We've all had that uncomfortableness of having to rebuke a teacher or rebuke our father or rebuke a boss or rebuke whoever, a husband, and you know, to try to correct someone, knowing that we might have to suffer the consequences of that remonstrance not being accepted sort of joyfully. So you say the ideal of this is found in First Peter chapter 3. Take us into that. So we read, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And, and the word there is that hupatasso word, which is, I would translate subordinate rather than submissive. So wives, likewise, be subordinate to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being subordinate to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid without any terror. So I say this is the ideal, not just because the word here subordination is used, but to see that the subordinate can win over the one in authority by conduct. And the subordinate has influence over the one in authority, right? That, that he or she can actually lead from the second chair, as it were, can be a moral model, can be a compass, can be a reminder. And this is done, as Peter describes it in The Wife, with this inner adornment of gentle and a quiet spirit, which I would say is a serving spirit. And then listen to immediately how uh, Peter transitions into the duty of husbands. Husbands likewise dwell with them, that is with their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So authority is not wielded for the sake of one's own pleasure, right? That authority is also to serve the mission of the family, if we're talking about husbands and wives, right? And that it's authority with understanding and also giving honor, right? Respect to the subordinate, recognizing that subordinates have a lot to add, that we need their counsel, that sort of thing, and recognizing in our subordinates the brotherhood in the grace of life, So whether we're talking about an associate pastor or a wife or even a child, right, or a sergeant major, there is this recognition that we're working together to accomplish a mission and that it's really literally a team effort. I think one of the things that kind of gets us with this whole stuff when we talk about leadership in the church, is that most of the stuff that we know, that we think about leadership, I think we tend to think in terms of either military terms or business. And the difficulty is that the military, you know, I'm an ROTC grad, so I lived through that and uh, was all leadership all the time, right? That's all we talked about or all they talked to us about. The thing is, is that it's the real, the real purpose in the army is to accomplish the mission, and your subordinates are tools for accomplishing the mission. I mean, you care about them the way you care about tools that you need to do your job. And also, you have authority in the army to give commands that have to be obeyed, or there's really strict penalties, like they could be executed. 
And business is kind of similar. The again, right? Their real goal. I know. I mean, they talk a lot about we're a family. Different businesses will talk that way, but. I mean, if we're thinking about corporate America, this is about making money. And the thing is, again, is your boss can, if you don't do what he commands, he can fire you, right? But in the church or in a family, Christian husbands do not have this kind of authority, right? If you tell your wife to do something and she doesn't do it, you have no recourse to corporal punishment. You have no recourse to divorce her, right? Just because she's not doing what you say and you can't fire her. And the difference is largely, I think, is that for the family, for the Christian, the subordinate is the mission. A Christian teacher dealing with a Christian student is attempting to impart virtue, to teach virtue, to train up skills that will promote the faith and serve the faith and by serving neighbor. And so it's really about the student. Literally, it's not about, you know, all the stuff that really often education kind of is about, collecting a paycheck, satisfying the administrator, that sort of thing. So this, uh, this idea of how influence is wielded, that in the church, I think as we see here in 1 Peter 3, that those in leadership, that they're, they're leading with understanding, they are engaged in persuasion by example and by sacrifice, and for the purpose of the subordinate and the, the mission of the, the unit, the family. But, but that's really quite a bit different than the way a Navy SEAL thinks about leadership or Jack Welch thinks about leadership. You also want to talk about where we can find biblical rebuke in marriage. And you wanted to begin with John chapter 5. That's right. So I want to talk about philia, because in the church, we typically think of agape as being the highest form of love. That's, 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 that's right. John, in particular, makes agape a technical theological term for divine love. Sometimes we talk about it as unconditional love, right? And so that's kind of the highest form of love in that it's divine. And there's a place for that in holy marriage, that we should attempt at least to love one another unconditionally, husband and wife, and that we should see one another as gifts from God and as duties given by God. So it's a divine reality. But philia is also a word for love in the Bible, and it shows up in John chapter 5. For the father loves the son, uses the word philia there, not agape, or eros. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he does for himself and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And again, in John chapter 16, again, for the father himself loves you, that's philia, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. So philia is the love between friends. And we always think of Philadelphia, which is the love between brothers. That's the Delphos part of Philadelphia. But, but philia is the love between friends. And it's, this is a, a difficult concept for us in the modern era for many reasons. But the best treatment of it, I think, is C.S. Lewis's chapter on it in his book, The Four Loves. And in there, I find him to have almost perfect correspondence with both Cicero and with Aristotle in recognizing that actually the most essential character within friendship, the, the way we love our friends, is a matter of respect. And that is to say that I like the kind of person that you are, and I want to be like you. I admire you. I respect you. It's not just simply that you amuse me. I like your company. 
It's got to be that, you know, we share a worldview, we share virtues. And so because of that, when our friends start to violate their own virtue, we have to rebuke them. And we rebuke them because we love them. So rebuke within the friendship is very important. That if, you know, you and I are good friends, Todd, and all of a sudden you start flirting inappropriately with your secretary and I see you, I'm going to say, Todd, what are you doing? We don't do that, right? We aren't like that. We're Christians. We honor our wives. We resist temptation. That's inappropriate. Now, if I do that and you are actually flirting with her, you might become defensive. So I, I rebuke you because I want you to be true to yourself, right? And I want you to be the sort of person I know you are, the person I admire. But in that rebuke, I take the risk, of course, that you're going to dissolve the friendship. But I would rather lose you as a friend if you're not going to be the sort of person that I admire and we don't have this shared virtue. And so that is a a huge aspect of actual love rather than just entertainment or amusement. And we, of course, we have such a devaluing of the word friend in English. We did anyway, but Facebook has just made it worse. Anyway, it's a term of love. And when we talk about love within between husbands and wives, this philia needs to be there. We need to actually respect one another, admire one another, see good in one another, and then hold one another to that goodness, to that kind of standard. And of course, it is a reflection of divine love as well. It's, it's another aspect of it. But the rebuke thing is key for Aristotle, for Cicero, and for Lewis. So to think about how we would do that with our friends, but also then to see this as an aspect that's necessary also in marriage. And again, it has this risk with it. It's not because it's different then. And that's the big category, I think, in the Bible of rebukes are going to be from authority, right? So we're going to see fathers rebuking their sons. Proverbs 29, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And Or we're going to see Jesus rebuking the disciples, you know, that kind of thing all the time. Most of the time in the Bible, that word is used where there's kind of no risk being taken. But but there is this other kind of aspect that I think is important and we and we need to explore Within the sort of friendship thing, going along with that word philia, which implies rebuking, you have different times, especially in the book of Proverbs, three times in chapter 27, where we get this idea of this friend or peer rebuking, verses five and six, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, we all know that in theory, but it's it's hard to practice it. And then again in verse 9, ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. And then verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So what I'm trying to say here is what we see here with philia and with these rebukes amongst friends and the ironing sharpening iron is also an aspect of holy marriage that I don't think maybe we've talked about as much as we could have or recognize the kind of deep dignity and importance that respect and love uh, have within marriage. It's part three of our series on marriage enrichment. On this Thursday, December the 22nd, we're talking with Pastor David Peterson, Pastor Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. When we come back, what is the authority behind these remonstrances or these rebukes? Stay tuned. 
clear, concise, consistent. You're listening to Issues Etc. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part three of our series on marriage enrichment. We're talking about rebuke within marriage with Pastor David Peterson. In about 20 minutes, we'll have Dr. Adam Francisco answer the question, did Christians borrow the virgin birth story from other ancient religions? How do we understand these rebukes vis-a-vis authority, David? Well, the, the authority just sort of has this ability to do it, I think, mostly without risk. And mostly that's the sort of obvious way. So when an authority rebuke, I can rebuke my child and I can just say, stop doing that, right? But if my child wants to tell me to stop doing something, he has to couch things a little bit more gently, right? To not be insubordinate. And it's often done through questions. So instead of the the child just saying, dad, stop, uh, I don't know, whatever you're doing, stop watching TV and come to the table and have family devotions. He, maybe he just says, oh, dad, do you remember it's time for devotions, right? Or I think that, you know, it takes a lot more nuance. It takes a lot more kind of cleverness. We have to use more indirect speech when we're not the authority. So the authority rebukes are kind of the easy ones. It's when we're in the subordinate position that it requires in a, I mean, I, the word I want to say is cunning, but I, I don't want to say a word that I think has a negative nuance. But wives do this all the time. And I think most of the time when things are relatively healthy and we're not, you know, in one of these bad seasons or difficult times in our marriage, if I sit down at the dinner table and, you know, I happen to notice that my plate is half broccoli, I know what's being said to me. I mean, she's kind of rebuking me and guiding me in a way without saying anything. And that's how we have to work within marriage most of the time. And that requires a lot of finesse, wisdom, patience. You uh, mentioned earlier Proverbs 29. Take us into that and explain what's going on. Well, we have the rod and rebuke give wisdom. So again, there is this whole idea that we have to actually take these things seriously and recognize that wisdom comes from resistance, like all strength. And there's going to be conflict involved and there's going to be humility and humility is going to be needed, right? The child doesn't enjoy the rod or the rebuke, but that is the way that the child actually grows and learns. And I don't enjoy the iron sharpening iron. I don't like it being pointed out to me I mean, I don't enjoy it in the moment, right? Being pointed out to me by my wife that I'm being 
kind of impatient or stubborn with my children, or that I'm not putting the best construction on what my mother said. These things are awkward and painful to to endure in the moment. So we need to be reminded of them and recognize that they actually are making us wiser and better in the long run and learn to thank God for them. I mean, the greatest rebuke we get, of course, is from God himself in his law that actually tells us we are wrong and we need to repent and rethink things. You have some biblical examples of rebuke or remonstrance. Yeah, and I think I can't find, you know, we don't have a parallel in Greek or in Hebrew for what I want to call remonstrance. And I can't find an example like in the Proverbs that gives this sort of particular thing I'm calling. But there are some really great narratives. And the best one, my favorite one is Zipporah. So from Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 24, right after Moses is getting ready to be sent to get the people out of Egypt, we read, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So you have this shocking scene, right? Everything's going along swimmingly. Moses has the command. He's ready to go. And they're on the way, and God decides to kill him. And we're not told why God decides to kill him, but Zipporah knows why, right? It's because Moses, that lazy bum, decided not to circumcise his own son. Why? I mean, who knows? Because circumcision's awkward, because it's painful, because he doesn't really believe in it, because he's just a wimp, whatever. He fails, right? This is his duty. He's supposed to do it. And all of a sudden, his own life is in danger because he has violated God's law, and he's going to be taken away from Zipporah, taken away from his children, and of course, not go to Egypt and rescue everybody. So Zipporah steps in, God bless her, and does what Moses should have done, right? She takes a sharp stone, and she does the circumcision in order to spare Moses's life, right? Not just the life of the son, but Moses himself. And she's disgusted that she's had to carry out his duty and do it for him. So she throws the bloody foreskin and she rebukes him. Surely you're a husband of blood to me. You put me in this situation. You made me do this. This is your fault. It never should have come to this, right? It's a pretty harsh rebuke, but I think it's very clear that she knows what has to be done and she does it and she corrects him. So I love that example. There's another one in 1 Samuel 25. Yeah, so this is, I won't read the whole thing here because it's sort of long, but this is Abigail. David is on his way to kill her husband, the fool, right? And she basically reasons with him and says that her husband's a fool. David shouldn't kill him. He shouldn't take vengeance himself. He should be faithful to who he is and to who his God, and she'll make up for it, and then David should spare her husband. And David does. And David is actually, at that point, he's about to make a mistake because he is caught up in vengeance. He's been insulted, and he wants to respond to it, but he wants to respond inappropriately. And what's really great about this particular rebuke What she does is she holds him to his own standards. So she's basically saying to him, look, David, we're not like this. This isn't the way we behave. You're a man after God's own heart. You shouldn't do this. Be true to your truer self. And she stops him before he goes into it. 
And that's a, a marvelous example. And I, I don't know if I've used this story on here before, but there's this story I just love like this that was told by this Marine from Vietnam. And they'd come through this awful situation, the U.S. Marine. They're there. They'd been through a terrible firefight. A lot of the Marines had died. Ultimately, they were victorious in this village. But in the midst of it, some of the villagers and their enemies had engaged in some immoral conduct. They had you know, strapped bombs underneath the shirts of women and children and sent them into the Marines. And the Marines you know, received them with compassion and then mercy, and then they were killed by it. The emotions were high for all obvious reasons. And they've now subdued this village, but they've lost a lot of their friends and through this gross behavior. And they've got these women and children kind of on the ground and and maybe a few men tied up. And there's this young Marine in the heat of this thing, and he's got his finger on his trigger and he's about to take retribution. He's going to shoot these unarmed civilians, right? You know, in his anger. And the story is that the captain walks up on the scene, right as this is about to happen, looks that young Marine in the eyes and simply says, Marines don't do that. And the, uh, the young Marine just comes back to himself and doesn't do it. And the whole thing's averted. And it's this marvelous kind of, right now, I know that's from authority to below, but this idea of calling one another back to our truer selves. Abigail does that with David in a beautiful and a very important way that I think is a good model for, again, for subordinates and for wives in particular. We're talking with Pastor David Peterson, part three of our series on marriage enrichment. Some more examples from the Old Testament Deborah in Judges 4 next. Thanks to our 2022 listeners in more than 160 countries. Please help us reach more worldwide listeners next year by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir and our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thank you for supporting the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. What does it mean to be a man? The December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the question of anthropology. And for us as Lutherans, understanding what man is and who man is begins first and foremost with understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, how he is the perfect man. Pick up your copy today by visiting cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Life Week 2023 with Lutherans for Life is coming soon, and you're personally invited to join in celebrating that you are blessed for life. From Sunday, January 15th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023, go to lutheransforlife.org for more information and for Zoom links. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? 
The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part three of our series on marriage enrichment with Pastor David Peterson. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of God Estinks, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. If you're enjoying our marriage enrichment series, please make a year-end tax-deductible gift to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. You can donate by check, make your check payable to Issues Etc., and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our new book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and our latest recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for including Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. Pastor Peterson, what about uh, Deborah in Judges chapter 4? Well, there you get, uh, right, that Barack doesn't want to do his job. And so Deborah shames him and says, you're not going to get the glory for this. I'm taking this for myself, but you don't get out of your duty completely. Judges chapter 4, 4 to 10. And I picked these, all of these three are, of course, particularly because we have women engaging in remonstrance or engaging in this kind of rebuke. So now Deborah, verse 4, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Gadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord of God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy the troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, right? And of course, it's jail that ultimately then deals the death blow. But you've got this amazing thing where what Barak asks of her is really inappropriate in a sense, but she doesn't just issue the rebuke. Didn't God tell you to do this? The answer is yes. Well, then go do it. He doesn't answer as well as he might have. He doesn't say, yes, I'm sorry, I'll go do it. He instead says, well, if you'll go with me. And she's willing to kind of endure this and to suffer this, that God's will would be done. So she does endure kind of, she doesn't get punished exactly because of the rebuke, but there are consequences and she does have to bear some of the burden herself and she's willing to. And again, it's commendable. It's to Barack's shame But it's a great example of actually helping those in authority over us and then suffering, in a sense, some of the consequences that sometimes that brings. So if you rebuke your husband, you know, and say, I don't think it's a good idea to buy a motorcycle because we can't afford it and that's not really where our money should be going, 
good for you. And he's convinced, okay, fine. Well, then also probably you shouldn't be buying this. He may not be completely correct, but you might have to endure it. There is this kind of moral imperative that's going to come with the rebuke that if you set the standard, Marines don't do that, then you have to hold it even in some sense to a higher standard. So going back to the sort of first Peter three thing, that by your conduct, you're going to win them. And by the inner virtue and reality of your faith that you're trusting in God for these things. Do you have other examples? Once you start seeing it, I think we see them all through the Bible. Those are the most pointed in my mind, but we have Joab, right, who does not remonstrate or rebuke David when he's sent to uh, set up Uriah, right, and uh, gets Uriah and a bunch of other people killed. So the kind of failure there, what might have been avoided if Joab had done it? And then probably the most famous one in the Bible is that Nathan does rebuke David successfully, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, where he tells the parable, of course, famously, and then David completely lacks mercy. And, you know, once the guy killed because he stole the lamb, and then, right, you are the man. And, you know, I often, when we talk about this, I often say, when do you think David was going to come to that opinion and repent on his own? And I think probably never, right? He needs Nathan. Nathan takes a huge risk there in rebuking David because David's the king. He's already murdered Uriah and a whole bunch of others. He's already taken Bathsheba for himself by force. But David knows what's good for the kingdom and what's right and can see in a sense, even in David in his lowest point, he can still see a glimpse of the man after God's own heart. He still knows that God loves David and that God can change people through his word. And it's a beautiful and a wonderful success, even though, of course, you know, David's kingdom is basically destroyed after that. You have also both Abraham and Moses who really argue with God, right? And those are both great examples, again, of holding the one in authority to his own standards or his own goodness. So I'll just read a few verses here from the Genesis 18 one. This is when God is angry again over Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to destroy them, right? And so we have this whole thing where he keeps asking them, how many will you do it for? And you get this great thing. So he says, for example, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? He asks in verse 23. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy this place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So it's this beautiful thing of, you sort of see this with the Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman as well, right? Like Luther talks about holding God to his own word. And that's what Abraham does. And Moses does that as well. And then I think where you really see a preponderance of this kind of thing is in the book of Daniel. And there we have the government, right? The king being rebuked or corrected. So the three young men with the fiery furnace do that. Daniel does it to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel does it again to Belshazzar. And then Daniel does it again to Darius. So that's chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six, right? So the first part 
of Daniel. But you have, again, they rebuke the leader and then they suffer the consequences. They get thrown into the furnace and or to the lions and, and, and so forth. And, you know, each time it's sort of like, well, you can't really kill me. You shouldn't do this because that's not just, that's not what a good king would do. But if you try to, we'll see what happens. Either way, God's in charge and I trust in him. With only a minute here, give us a little preview of what we discuss next time. You're going to be talking about subordinate leadership. I want to talk about the obvious capacity of women to learn, that they're actually expected to learn, even though they are to be subordinate to their husbands, and how the idea of asking their husbands at home spares their husbands public shame, but also guides and helps their husbands in a way that's appropriate. So again, I don't understand the biblical model and the order of creation to be suggesting that women are inferior or passive or submissive in a way that's humiliating, that rather they're part of the team and they're actually exercising real leadership. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of God Estinct's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be talking with Dr. Adam Francisco of Concordia University, Chicago, about a story that alleges that Christians may have borrowed the virgin birth story from other ancient religions. Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry lcms.org slash deaconess. If you plan on doing some online Christmas shopping with Amazon, you can also help support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. Just go to smile.amazon.com, sign into your Amazon account, enter Lutheran Public Radio into the charitable organization search field, and click select. A percentage of your purchase will be donated to issues, etc. smile.amazon.com and choose Lutheran Public Radio. Thanks for your support. Teach, learn, connect at Louisville's Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Our school is the only LCMS school in the greater Louisville metro area. It's a traditional Christian school with a rich history of academic excellence. From preschool through eighth grade, our teachers, staff, and church congregation connect with children across our city every day. Learn more online at Facebook or Twitter or call 502-426-0864. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc.
come and, and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors, coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu.